you have a Bible, take it and please turn to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the back table there. You're welcome to borrow one. Luke chapter 18, and we will finish up Luke 18 um, this morning. We've been plodding through the book of Luke for some time now, and um, slowly getting closer and, and closer to chapter 24. Uh, but we're finishing up chapter 18 this morning. Did you know that there's a, a school for the blind here in Louisville? How many of you knew that? It's actually very well known. Um, it's a and a, um, many people take advantage of it. My family's been there. I have not been there. They went and uh, the Kentucky School for the Blind. You can go and you can. They have Braille typewriters and you can type your name in Braille or type different things and um, just so many different services um, that they offer to those who are blind. It's a tough thing to imagine. Can you imagine being blind? Imagine being unable to see, to go through life in, in darkness. Even now, maybe just close your eyes and think, how, how would it be to live like, like this with, with no sight, no opportunity to see the things that are around you? Can you imagine being blind and not realizing you're blind? I mean, is that even possible? <laughs> I don't think it really is, but can you imagine that? Being blind and not recognizing that you're blind, thinking that you, you're fine, that you can go everywhere you need to go. Imagine that you were blind today and you thought, I'm not blind, and you walked out into this parking lot and you tried to walk across it. You tried to walk down the street through this snow. It would be literally impossible. It would be threatening to your life. As we look at Luke 18, I think what we find is we find the disciples who think that they can see clearly but in fact are blind, and a blind man who sees clearer than anyone else in the passage. Of course, we're not talking just solely about physical blindness, but about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. And I think we're going to see, hopefully, an example that that lets us see where we are blind, but also where we have been given sight and how we are given sight. I think the main idea of this passage is that Jesus gives sight to those who call out in faith. Jesus gives sight to those who call out in faith. So my hope this morning is that we would see the ways that we are blind We would see the ways that Christ has caused us to see and to see that faith is the key, that faith is what opens our eyes to see the truth of who Christ is and what he has done, and that our response would be praise and glorifying God. So look at Luke 18, and I want to read verses 31 to 43. Luke 18, verses 31 through 43. And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, 
recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. What a great story. This is the last, actually, of the miracles that Jesus will perform in the book of Luke. This is the final healing that he offers here at the end of chapter 18. Jesus gives sight to those who call out in faith. Uh, The passage breaks down very simply into two parts, verses 31 through 34, and then verses 35 through the end to verse 43. I want us to think first about the blindness of the disciples here in verses 31 through 34. the, The blindness of the disciples. You know, realizing that you're blind is the first step in recovering your sight. And so the disciples need to see that they are blind, and maybe we do as well. So as we look at these, we want to see what they are blind to and also what we might be blind to in our own lives. You notice here that Jesus takes the twelve apart and he brings them aside and he gives them a a specific message. A message about where they are headed and what is going to happen. Um, A message that they had heard many times before, at least six times here in the book of Luke. Jesus foretells what is going to happen. He reminds them that they are headed to Jerusalem. You'll remember that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, is what Luke tells us. He's, he's, and he reminds the disciples that they're, they're getting closer and, and closer to their desired destination. And Jesus further says here, he says that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished when they get to Jerusalem. Now what's that going to look like? This, this fulfillment of all these, these prophecies, what does that mean? A typical understanding for for a Jewish person in that time about the Messiah and these Messianic prophecies would be that he's going to come with power, that he's going to um, come with might, and he's going to deliver his people from the rule and the reign of evil, and he's going to establish his kingdom. Well, Jesus does all that, doesn't he? He doesn't do it the way that they expected. He does it in an invisible way, a way that was very strange to them. He doesn't come with swords and and with with armies. He doesn't overthrow the government. He doesn't take a throne. In fact, this is what his description is. Here is how he is going to fulfill all the prophecies about the Son of Man. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, probably a reference to the Romans, that he will be given over to them. And he will be mocked. He will be made fun of. He will be laughed at treated with scorn. He will be shamefully treated. People will hit him and say, prophesy, who hit you? They will spit on him. You ever been spit on? It's a very degrading thing. There's nothing more degrading that I can think of than for someone to spit on you. And he says, I will be spit on. And after flogging him, after beating him, in some corrective sense for something that he never did wrong, they will kill him. We're very familiar with this, and we read it, and we don't realize exactly what this all means. That this is what Jesus says. This is, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I know that these things are going to happen to me. This is why I'm going there. Then, of course, at the end of verse 33, and on the third day, he will rise. (laughs) These are prophecies that are fulfilled. We see all kinds of prophecies like this throughout the Psalms. You can look at Psalm 22. And it'll be as if it's written about Jesus if you read it with that lens. And even Isaiah 53 that speaks about the suffering servant. This theme's probably not as prominent thinking about the Messiah. It is more that conquering ruler. And Jesus will come as a conquering ruler. But in this instance, and for now, he has come as a suffering servant. 
And Jesus assumed that we would actually understand that. It's interesting. Jesus says to people, haven't you read the Old Testament? Haven't you read the Scriptures? Didn't you know that this was supposed to happen? So there's an assumption that they will know that this is supposed to happen. As I read these words, I'm just reminded, and we are reminded once again, that that the crucifixion of of Jesus was not an accident. accident. It it wasn't an an unfortunate consequence of him having spoken too quickly or, or or too rashly. Things didn't get out of hand for Jesus to the point that he was killed. Rather, this is the fulfillment of God's plan. He was going to Jerusalem for this very purpose, and he knew exactly what was going to happen. He is in full control of where he is going, and he's placed himself completely into the Father's hands, so that when he arrives in Jerusalem, the Father will will accomplish everything that he desires for Christ. So here, I think, is maybe the first thing that the disciples are blind to, that we can often be blind to, and it's this. It's God's control over all things. God's control over all things, what we call God's sovereignty. That all events in our lives and in this world, no matter how confusing, no matter how dark, are somehow ordained by God's all-powerful hand. This is something that we are to take comfort in. That even Jesus here, knowing this is going to happen, in some sense takes comfort in the, the fact that our God is great, that nothing is outside of his sovereign control, that he is in control, that whatever may come into our lives, he has it under control. Jesus is being delivered into the hands of men, it says. Isn't that interesting? He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And yet, the whole time he is in God's hands. They will have their will, and yet, as they have their will, they are fulfilling God's will. It's what it's what Peter says in Acts that you crucified him according to the preordained plan of God. God knew exactly what was going to happen. Now we can see this. We can understand that all on this side of the cross. But we're told that the disciples understood none of these things. Zero. <laughs> they didn't get any of it. They understood none of these things. Now, I think part of this had to do with their expectations, right? This is who the Messiah is going to be. He's going to come as this conquering king. And the the idea that he is going to suffer, it just doesn't make any sense to them. It, It makes sense to us now, but put yourself in their shoes, you know. So, having read the rest of the story, we get it. And yet I think about them, and the issue is they're confused about the place of suffering in their lives. Isn't this something else we're blind to? Not simply God's control over all things, but even more specifically, the place of suffering in our lives? It doesn't make sense to them because they don't understand the place of suffering. The difficulty they have is closely tied to the fact that a suffering Messiah, that's like an oxymoron, that doesn't make any sense. The Messiah doesn't suffer. That the Messiah won't suffer makes more sense to them. How how could the cross be Jesus' destination if he really is the conqueror? How could he be handed over to the Gentiles as God's plan for the salvation of the world? That doesn't make any sense. And and we can begin to think the same way, can't we? How could could it be that in the Christian life that the cross is, is the end? We begin to think that, that the Christian life is one that is free from the cross rather than founded on the cross. You know, that it's the cross is what marks how we are to walk with Jesus. We are to die daily. We are to take up our cross every day. And yet somehow we get blind to that. And when suffering comes into our lives, we think, what is this? Why is this happening to me? It doesn't make any sense. 
I think because sometimes, whether we admit it or not, we believe in some form of the prosperity gospel. I mean, I reject the prosperity gospel. I do it verbally right now. I reject the prosperity gospel. But in my life, sometimes I don't. I think that everything should go well for me. If I'm following Jesus, then everything should go right. I struggle to see God's purposes and His plans in the midst of pain, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of of suffering. I, I don't pray right. I pray, God, get me out of this. <laughs> now, because this obviously isn't right. I'm obviously not supposed to be here. There's a sense where we pray for God to deliver us from evil, but we also pray for Him to pre- preserve us through it. That, that He would take our pain and He would turn it to good. The good of making us more like Himself. That He would be glorified as other people witness us with our patience and our faith in the midst of of difficulty. We can't be blind to the place of suffering in our lives. Suffering is inevitable for us as Christians. Jesus says that. He says, listen, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's inevitable. I went down the road of the cross, and I'm calling you to go down the same road. I think the disciples missed this because they didn't understand how a Messiah could suffer. And sometimes we think the same way. When suffering comes, do we recognize it as part of God's plan? So their expectations are keeping these things hidden from them. But but the rest of this verse indicates that there's something deeper going on. Look at verse 34 again. But they understood none of these things. This saying, saying was hidden from them. Isn't that interesting? It says it's hidden from them. So there has to be a sense, actually, in which God is keeping them from fully understanding this. They are blind to these things. It has this idea that they're in a cellar, they're in a dark and and hidden place. Why? Why would God keep that from them? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why. Why were they? Why were these things hidden from them? I'm not sure. I know that there are secret things that belong to God. I know that there are things in this life that we will never fully understand. That we should embrace that. That there are things that God knows and His purposes are clear and we can trust in the sovereignty of God even if we never fully understand it. I think that's part of the lesson of Job. We get to see what's happening in heaven, right? At the beginning of Job. Job never knew any of that as far as we know. He suffered, he was delivered, but he never knew why. The truth of God is this kind of thing. It's, it's a kind of thing that has to be revealed to us. That there are things that are hidden and that they must be, spiritual things have to be spiritually discerned and we need the Spirit to understand the truth of God. The disciples would eventually understand these things. They'd eventually get it actually. And that's what's so interesting. If you look at, at Luke 24, we will get there eventually, I promise. But in Luke 24, Jesus, he meets two guys on the, on the road to Emmaus and they're mourning the death of Jesus. They meet Jesus. And they're mourning Jesus' death, but they don't see it's Jesus. It's a very ironic story. And they're, they're walking along, and Jesus comes up, and he says, hey, what's going on? And they say, you don't know what's going on? Everyone in Jerusalem knows what's going on. And they relate to him all that had happened about Jesus, how we thought he was going to be the Messiah, and then he, he died. And, and now we don't know what to do because the women have come back, and they say they went to the tomb, and there's no one there, which that can't be right because, I mean, there's no way that that's happened. And so they don't know what to do. And in verse 25 of Luke 24, it says, And he, Jesus, said to them, they don't know it's Jesus, remember, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe, what? All that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Amazing. The the day gets late. They say, hey, come back with us. They go back to the house. Jesus breaks bread in front of them and gives it to them. And in verse 31 it says, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. <laughs> what an amazing thing that at that moment, suddenly, their eyes were open. He shows up later to all the disciples in chapter 24, and, and they're all there, and they don't believe what's going on, and so he, he shows them the scars in his hands, and he says, give me a piece of fish, and he eats it in front of them so they know he's not a ghost, that he's real. And then in verse 44 it says, Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He opens their minds to understand these things. There's something about the truth of God where he needs to open our minds. And so in actuality, one of the things that we can be blind to, not just God's sovereignty and not just the place of suffering, but we can actually be blind and are blind apart from Christ. We are blind to the gospel itself. We cannot see the truth of the gospel. Is that not what Jesus is explaining? He's talking about the Son of Man is going to to suffer and die and rise again. That is the gospel. That is the hope of the gospel. And they don't understand it until Jesus opens their minds to understand it. We all, apart from Jesus, are blind to the truth of the gospel. Unless God, by His Spirit, opens our eyes to see the truth, we will not see it. We will be just like the disciples. We will understand none of these things. They will be hidden from us, and we will not grasp what he says. It's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? That God would actually blind us from the truth? It's it maybe not scary, but it's it's a bit confusing. It's it's hard to know why he would do that. So how do we come to see? How, how do we come to see the truth of the gospel? I want to see it. I mean, I want to hear what Jesus says and understand what he's saying. I want him to open my mind to these things. I think that's where the second story comes in. How do we come to see? In the story that follows, we're going to find that faith is the key to sight. This is, so we'll just call these, this section the sight of the blind man. So the blindness of the disciples and the sight of the blind man now. It's, it's not a coincidence that Jesus and his disciples now encounter a blind man on the streets of Jericho. Uh, because again, it's just, as with the tax collector that we saw earlier, as with the children that we saw last week, Jesus is, is going to use an unlikely character to teach us something valuable about the way things work in the kingdom. So they approach the city, and the scene is sort of set for us. They're getting, going to Jericho. There's a blind man on the side of the road who's, who's begging. And don't just skate over those words. Picture this man. He's, he's a blind man sitting on the side of the road, probably maybe holding out some cup for money. He's done this for many, many days, probably years, brought there maybe by his family to sit and to earn some sort of living. He sees nothing, not even the money that, that strangers might drop into his cup. And on this particular day, he's, he's sitting there, 
and he can't see, and, and often when people have one sense that's, that's impaired, they have other senses that, that compensate. So he hears things, and he hears everything. And, and he hears that there's, there's a crowd coming, some sort of unusual commotion. He sort of senses this electricity in the air, you know. And so he asks, you know, what, what's going on? He's just sort of shouting out. He can't see anyone. What's happening? And finally someone answers him and says, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus is in town. Jesus has come to town. What a great thought, you know. Oh, this, this guy's name, we're told by Mark, is, is Bartimaeus. Uh, we must assume that he had heard something about Jesus because of the way that he reacts. Who, who knows how he had heard, maybe where he traveled. Again, he's listening all the time, and he maybe heard people talk about Jesus. Maybe his family had heard, and they told him some, some stories, and he's, he's heard about Jesus' teaching. He's heard about all the confusion that's, that he's causing amongst the Pharisees, you know, and that's all the religious, religious elite just don't know what to do with this guy. He's heard about how he's healed lepers. He's, he's heard about how he raised the dead. But his favorite stories are the fact that he heard that Jesus made blind people see. Can you imagine what that would be like to a blind person? I mean, there is no cure for blindness, as far as I know. And, and the fact that there's, there's a man that's, that, that lives in the same country as him, that then comes to his actual village who can make him see he has the power to give him sight. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that you are blind? Or maybe think about your, if it's easier for you to think about you and I have a debilitating disease that there's, there's no cure for it. And you find out that there's someone in the state of Kentucky that has healed people of this. Confirmed cases. I mean, this is legit. It's on the news. It's, it's real. He has actually healed people. And one day you go down to the mall at St. Matthew's and you hear he's in the food court. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to go find this guy, right? And, and that's, that's what this man does. He hears that Jesus is not simply in town. He's going to walk by. Like he's, he's right near him. He's in spitting distance of him. And so he starts to shout. I mean, he's just, yelling at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone's sort of startled at first, like, what's going on? I mean, this guy could probably yell. He's yelling with all his might. And he does it again, and the disciples, it says at the front, were, were annoyed. <laughs> it doesn't say they were annoyed, but that's what we can assume. They go up to him and they, they rebuke him. They tell him to be quiet. I, they just, you know, we just dealt with all these kids. Wanting to come to Jesus. Now we got blind beggars wanting to come to Jesus. And they tell him to be quiet. Quit screaming. And you can almost see this, this blind man. He's sort of, you know, however you might look at them, he looks at them. And he just shouts louder. <laughs> Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Isn't that a cry of faith? What a beautiful cry of faith. This guy is blind, but he sees two things more clearly than anyone else that day. This guy sees who Jesus is, and he sees why Jesus has come. This man's cry it recognizes who Jesus is. He calls him the son of David. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the crowd recognizes him as. He says, no, it's not just Jesus of Nazareth. This is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. Later on, he even calls him Lord when he addresses him. He is Lord. He is in control. This blind man sees that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy given to David, that he is the one, he is the seed that will reign on David's throne. And he has, he has come. This is Jesus. This blind man believes that. 
And not only that, but he acknowledges why Jesus has come. Maybe, you know, he heard those words that Jesus had, had said he fulfilled back in, in Luke 4. These key words of Luke where Jesus takes up the scroll. When he's in Nazareth and he reads from Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then you remember he sits down and says, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. I am the fulfillment of those things. And this man knows that that's why Jesus has come, that Jesus has come to show mercy. He has come, we will see in chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this guy says, if he's come to seek and to save the lost, if he's come to give blind people sight, then that's me. He's come for me. He sees who Jesus is. He sees why he has come. And so he calls out with full confidence for mercy, knowing that Jesus can give it. Do you know who Jesus is? Isn't that a good question to ask ourselves? Do I, do I see who Jesus is? That he is the son of David, that he is the fulfillment of everything that is written in the Old Testament. That he's the son of man, is what he's called in, in chapter in 31 to 34. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, that he was a man, but yet he was God in the flesh. He's God come. He is the one who has, has been sent from God to bring deliverance. Do you know why he has come? That he's come to show mercy, and the way that he has accomplished the opportunity to show us mercy is by being delivered over to the Gentiles and being mocked and shamefully treated and spit on and flogged and killed and then raised up from the dead. And that is why He has come. He has come to show us mercy, and He does it by accomplishing salvation, by suffering the penalty for sin that we deserve, and rising again to give us new life in Himself. Have you ever cried out for mercy like this man? Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Maybe you've tried, you know. You've tried to cry out for mercy, but that cry has been squelched. By someone who came by and said, you know, Jesus doesn't want to listen to you. Maybe that was real. Maybe someone actually said that to you. Maybe it was perceived. You've perceived that by the the church or by some religious establishment. They're pushing you away. They're saying, you know, Jesus doesn't have time for you. He's too busy. He's too holy. And you're too sinful to come to him. None of that is true. God forbid that we as a church ever do that. And God forgive us for ever pushing people away in that way. A blind beggar comes to Jesus. Calls out for mercy. Anyone can call out for mercy. So what's going to happen though, right? He's crying out. Are we going to find that Jesus agrees with the crowd? Yeah, I don't have time for him. Is that what happens? We find again that Jesus breaks down all the barriers that other people set up. Don't forget he's on his way to Jerusalem. I mean, the shadow of death is, is hanging over him. In the next chapter, we're going to see the triumphal entry. So he's, he's entering into Passion Week. It's, it's coming very close. But he still has time for a blind and penniless man. So he, he calls him near. He says, you know, he, he tells them to do the opposite of what they wanted to do. He's, he stops. Jesus stops the whole crowd. Commands them to come, to, to command the people to bring him. It's funny, he doesn't even just say, 
doesn't go to the beggar. He makes the people who were rejecting the beggar bring him to you guys go get him and bring him to me. And so they go and they pick up this man and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man replies with this full, unashamed faith, Lord, let me recover my sight. You know, it's the mercy that he wants. It's the mercy he needs. It's the mercy that only Jesus can give to him. And Jesus says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. Because every miracle of Jesus is pointing to that greater miracle of salvation. It's not just physical blindness that he came to heal. He came to heal us from our spiritual blindness, to open our eyes to our sin, to open our eyes to our need of a Savior. And the text says that immediately, immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. I love this simple cry of faith. You know, I think we can overcomplicate the gospel. Let's not do that. Let's not overcomplicate what Jesus has said. What's it say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that this man is just saying, son of David, have mercy on me. It's a recognition of who Jesus is, and it's an asking, it's a pleading for mercy and for forgiveness and for grace. As you go to people, as we talk to people about the gospel, we need to make sure that we are clear about what Christ has done. But at the same time, there needs to come a time where we just say, do you know who Jesus is? Do you repent of sin? Will you put your faith in Christ alone for salvation? Then you will be saved. Compare with me just for a moment, those of you that were with or with us last week or maybe are familiar. Think about this guy compared to the rich young ruler, okay? About the blind beggar compared to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was rich. <laughs> the blind beggar was penniless. The rich young ruler was a ruler. The blind beggar is a beggar. The rich young ruler is welcomed by the crowd. They say this is the kind of guy that needs to come to Jesus. The blind beggar is rejected by the crowd. No one thinks that Jesus has any time for him. The rich young ruler, what's he come to Jesus and say? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The blind beggar cries out for mercy. And what does Jesus say? What do you want me to do for you? The the rich young ruler lacked faith in God alone, and he has all this confidence in himself. But this blind beggar, Jesus says, his faith made him well. Why? Because he trusted in Christ alone and nothing else. The rich young ruler walked away sad. The blind beggar is given sight and joyfully follows Jesus, it says. (laughs) So again, we find that it's, it's those that we least expect that Jesus welcomes into the kingdom. It's those that are blind. And that's who we are. Let me give you something else that we can be blind to. We can be blind to the fact that we are blind. <laughs> we be blind to the fact that we are blind, that we, that we can't see Christ that we don't understand the gospel. We think we've got it all figured out, like the rich young ruler. We think we have it all under control, that we're doing okay, that we understand everything. And In fact, we are blind. And Jesus has to open our eyes. 
And how does Jesus open our eyes? Remember that question? You know, I, I, Jesus hides things, so, but I want to be able to see. How do, what's the solution for this man? Why were his eyes opened? What's it say? Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Faith is the key. Jesus gives sight. He opens the eyes of those who call out to him in faith, who come and ask for help, for say, Jesus, I can't see on my own. Will you give me eyes to see? The problem is, again, that we don't realize that we're blind. We are like the church in Laodicea. Listen to this letter in Revelation chapter 3. This is what is written to the church in Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We know that part. Think about this part. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you. I encourage you, I implore you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. If we come to Jesus saying, I'm rich, I've prospered, I have need of nothing, we are fools because we are poor We are wretched, we are miserable, we are blind, and we are naked. And we need to come to Jesus and buy. (laughs) He tells us to buy, but then later on in Revelation, doesn't he say, come to the waters of life that are what? They're free. They are offered freely. The salve that he wants to give us for our eyes is free. He doesn't ask anything from this blind beggar. What's he bring? He brings faith. And faith is what glorifies God, isn't it? Because faith, if I come to Jesus in anything but faith, then some of the credit goes to me. But if it's all of faith, if I recognize I'm poor, I'm miserable, I'm blind, and I'm a beggar, and I come to Jesus, and he heals me and gives me sight and helps me understand the gospel and saves me and makes me a child and calls me to follow him, who gets all the glory? God does, because like, I haven't done anything. I couldn't do anything. I was totally incapable of doing anything. And recognizing that is what caused me to have faith and ultimately gives us sight. Notice finally then just simply the response of the crowd. He follows glorifying God. And all the people, all the people when they saw it, gave praise to God. You know, you, you sometimes want to put people in their place. Like, these are the guys that rejected him and say, you want to say, ha, he should have been brought. You guys were unwilling to bring him. But I love that it's it's as if the, all the people say, and I know that's not maybe literally all the people, but there is this sense in them that they say, oh, maybe we finally get it. You know, that it is tax collectors and it is children and it is blind beggars. That's who Jesus wants. And they, they get it and they don't, they're not angry, but they rejoice. They give praise to God. They glorify God. If salvation is, is not by anything other than faith, then all the credit goes to God and none of it goes to us. And when we see people who are blind and poor brought to Jesus, then we will rejoice. We will give praise to God. We won't be the ones that are pushing them away, but rather we will rejoice at what Christ has done. And we should rejoice ourselves, shouldn't we? Because this is us. We are all this blind beggar. We sometimes act like the disciples. We think we got it all figured out and we are totally blind. 
But if we recognize that we are this blind man, then we will really see what Christ has done. And what will our response be? We will glorify God. We will praise God for what he has done. Because Jesus gives sight to those who will call out in faith. I implore you, I encourage you to call out in faith. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you've seen who Jesus is for the first time. You've understand why he came for the first time. If you come to Jesus and you say, Son of David, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, he will. He will have mercy. He will give sight to your blind eyes. For others of us, we need to remember that God is in control of all things. We need to, to remember that suffering is a part of our lives. And the only way we're going to understand things like that is by, by faith. But let's also just rejoice to remember that this is who we are apart from Christ. And if we have been saved, we've been given eyes to see. I think one of the best ways that we can do that is we're going to sing. After I pray, we'll sing Amazing Grace. Isn't that appropriate? Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray together and then we will rejoice and praise God for what He's done. Father, thank You. Thank You for being patient with us like You are patient with Your disciples. Thank You for opening our eyes. If, if it were not for You and Your grace, that we would, we would still be blind. We would not see our sin. We would have walked away sad like the rich young ruler. But many of us are here today because You hoped us to see You opened our eyes to our sin. You opened our eyes to the suffering of Christ, to what He accomplished for us. Lord, help us never to reject anyone, never to push people away, but rather to have mercy like You, to call people to You, that they might cry out for mercy and You would show it to them. Lord, we give all praise to You, all glory to You this morning. Lord, not to us. We have done nothing. We can do nothing. But we give all thanks and all praise to you. Even now, Lord, as we sing this familiar song, may its words be fresh to us, or as we are reminded of all that you have done for us in Christ. pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.